Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John chapter 11. John chapter 11 and hold your spot there. And uh, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture today, mainly just sort of camping out in one place. But we're going to have a a number of different uh, uh, points to learn kind of as we move our way through this passage of Scripture. So I'm not sending you all over the Bible this morning. I think we did that last week to some degree, or a couple of weeks ago at least. But we are going to look, you're going to get it right down, quite a few little things this morning, looking at a very, very popular passage of Scripture. So when I grew up, I grew up off of Bonaventure Road, one of the state streets over there, and uh, a lot of that is still is developed now. But back then, our backyard kind of ran down to the woods, and it was a fairly big backyard, and, um, and so you had the part up there kind of close to the house. Then we had what my parents always called the lower yard, whatever that was, but it ran down to the woods. And so we always had BB guns and pellet guns sitting around. And I remember specifically being a little kid, I don't remember how old I was, I'm guessing 10 maybe, give or take, and I remember specifically going out in the yard one day, and I guess something in my mind decided, you know what, today's the day that I'm going to shoot something that is alive, and I went out in my backyard, and I had my BB gun, and I took aim at a bird and actually hit this time what I was aiming at. And when I shot that bird, it was probably almost immediately I felt this overwhelming sense of guilt. And I saw that poor little creature sitting there, no longer alive. And it was my fault. And it's like I wanted to hit my knees, you know. And I went inside and I confessed to my mom what I had done, that I had killed this bird. And to my knowledge, I don't remember ever shooting anything that was alive ever again. I've never been hunting, really, like probably a lot of you have. Never really had a desire to. Now, fish, that's a another thing. I don't mind, you know, fishing, that kind of stuff, but shooting something with a gun, I, that was it kind of for the day, or th- that day, that was it for me. And it, I think it was maybe my first real sort of coming to grips with the reality of death. I also remember a little bit, I guess, probably later in my life, I was fifth grade, I have this distinct memory of sitting on the top step with my mom in our house and my mom sharing with me that my granddad had gone to be with Jesus. That was the wording that she used, I still remember. And that was my first real memory of dealing with the reality of death regarding somebody that I knew, somebody that I loved. You know, when you think about it, all of us have been there to some degree or other. We've all lost someone or something, and the reality of death is all around us. I mean, for the last few months, I've been watching my front yard slowly die, for goodness gracious, right? Because, I mean, we're just surrounded by death when you think about it. Some of you... You have what's called a black thumb, not a green thumb, and you know it, and you brag about it, and everybody tells you that, and they don't give you plants, they don't give you, you know, things to try to keep alive in the garden because they know you've got a black thumb, and if you start trying to take care of it, it's going to die. I mean, you know that, and they know that. We're surrounded by the reality of death. When your cell phone is starting to run down, what do you say? Hey, my battery is about to die, or my battery has already died. Even in the verbiage that we use, the terminology that we use in our language, we're surrounded by the reality of death. And sometimes it is something inanimate like that, something that's really not that, that necessarily important. Maybe it's something like a battery or a, a garden or a plant or whatever may be the case. Other times it is, it is a person. It's a loved one or it's a, it's a colleague, it's a close friend or, or it's somebody that you feel like you know because you've seen them on TV or in the movies forever and ever and ever and you learn that they have died and that death has sort of overtaken them and, and it, it has a little bit of an impact on you because you felt like you knew them. But then other times in life, we face death in different ways. 
And it's not a person and it's not a thing. It's something on the inside. Sometimes it's the death of a, of a hope that we had. We always held on to this particular hope in our life. And, and somewhere along the way, that hope began to slowly die. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're at a place where you've had a hope in something specific and you just feel like that hope is just sort of dying on the vine. It's just hanging on by a thread. Or maybe you feel like that, that your hope has died completely in some area of your life. Maybe it's a friendship that has died. Maybe it's a dream or an aspiration, something that you'd always set your mind on, something you'd always set your heart on, and you've just sort of held on to this thing, and somewhere along the way, maybe these last few months have just, something on the inside has just begun to die for you. And even emotionally, you, that's the terminology you use. I, you know, I just feel like I'm dead on the inside. Maybe that's where you are this morning. And if you're not there today, you've probably been there, or you know people who are there. Right? Well, this passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning specifically is going to deal with a very simple truth. And I'm going to give you a number of them, and I hope you either jot them down or have a really good memory because they're going to be so applicable for us, not just in this day and age in which we live, but from this day forward as well. And the first principle that I want you to jot down is that Jesus literally can bring dead things to life. Jesus Christ himself can bring dead things to life. That's who he is, that's what he does. And he's done it for a long time and he still does it today. And that's what we're going to look at in this passage of Scripture in John chapter 11, that Jesus specifically is the only one who can bring dead things to life. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we see that three different places in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, we see that Jesus raised somebody from the dead. And that's just astounding when you think about it. If you've been in church for very long, maybe you were raised in church, or maybe, uh, you know, maybe for you, church has been just a part of the fabric of your life for a long time. And when I make that statement that three times in the New Testament, Jesus raised a person from the dead, it doesn't even rattle you anymore, right? It doesn't even have an effect. You can just, just kind of yawn through that to some degree because you're so accustomed to it. But we have to take a step back sometimes and remind ourselves that we serve a God who has the ability <laughs> and often even has the desire to bring dead things back to life again. And three times in the New Testament, Jesus did that. Once was with the daughter, a 12-year-old daughter specifically, of a, uh, of a synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus, and Jesus learned that she was, was sick, and he came to her, she had already passed away, and he raised her back to life again. Another time was when he and some of his disciples were traveling down this, this road and uh, they encountered the, uh, the, uh, a funeral procession, for the most part, of a, uh, of a young boy who had passed away. He was the son of a widow from the city of Nain. And you had this procession of death carrying the body of this young son of this widow from the city of Nain, and they encounter this procession of life with Jesus at the head and his followers behind him. And when all was said and done and the dust had cleared, Jesus had raised him from the dead as well. And then the third instance, maybe the most well-known, is what we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 11, surrounding a man many of you know by the name of Lazarus. So let me give you a little backstory about Lazarus. Lazarus is most well known for this event that we're about to read in just a moment. He's not as well known for something that he did or something that he accomplished or anything that he taught. He is most well known for being dead. That's what Lazarus is known for, right? He's like, hey, any of you ever heard of Lazarus? Isn't that that guy that was dead? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly who we're talking about. That's what he's known for. That's kind of how he made his name in a lot of ways. He was a person who had passed away, and we read his lengthy story in John chapter 11. So he lived in a city called Bethany. Bethany was not a, really a significant city. It's not like Jerusalem. 
But there were a lot of significant events in Jesus' ministry that happened in Bethany. Lazarus was from there. He lived in Bethany. This town was about two miles east of Jerusalem. He also lived in that city uh, with two sisters, Mary and Martha, who as well lived in the city of Bethany. And what we find here is that Jesus was no doubt close friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Maybe they had traveled together. Maybe they had done ministry together. Lazarus was not a disciple, but there appears to be, in the context of this passage, a closeness, a familiarity there. And we're going to find that Jesus is going to perform one of his most well-known miracles. Maybe the most well-known miracle of all is going to be done here in the life of Lazarus. And the main ingredient that Jesus is going to use is not going to be these astounding elements or amazing ingredients for this miracle. The most amazing miracle perhaps Jesus is going to uh, pull off is going to include the ingredient of death. That's the ingredient. And it's as though you come to Jesus and say, all right, so you say you're the son of God. You say you can do anything. Let's have you perform a miracle, and I'll give you the one thing that you've got to use to perform a miracle, and it's going to be death itself. And Jesus takes it, and he says, all right, here we go. And Lazarus is going to be the person that he's going to ultimately perform this miracle, bringing death to a place of life. And he still does it today. So let's jump in. John chapter 11. It's a lengthy passage. Some of this passage I'll give as kind of a recap, uh, but a lot of verses we're going to read this morning. And uh, as we look at how God still today brings life out of death, whether that's physically, as we'll see, will come in a date later, or whether it's out of, out of those other things that sometimes die in our lives as well. John chapter 11, verse 3 and verse 4. Let's jump in here. So John is writing and he says, so the sisters, this is Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters. So the sisters sent word to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. That's a reference to Lazarus. He had grown ill. And uh, what could often be treated today in our century could often result in death in the first century. So Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Lazarus is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Principle number two, God can leverage even death itself ultimately to give himself glory. Now, here's what this means for you. You're probably pinching yourself thinking, okay, all right, so I don't know how this applies to me because I'm alive right now, and uh, so I don't understand where Brooks is going. Remember, death comes in different ways other than just physically. You may be sitting there today saying, you know what, something on the inside of me seems dead. I'm dying on the inside. I feel lonely. I feel afraid. I feel overcome. I feel like there's an addiction in my life that I can't, that I can't ultimately put down. I feel like I'm dead because of this. There are all different ways that we can, can feel as though we're dead on the inside. And the good news is, is that God can even leverage that experience to give himself glory. Now, that sounds like God is maniacal to some degree, right? If you read that out of context, well, God just wants to hurt me so that he can get glory. God wants to push me down so that he can ultimately appear to, to elevate himself. That's not what we're saying. God loves us as his followers. God is for us. God doesn't bring harm to his children. We live in a fallen world. Death was not a part of the perfect plan in Genesis 1 and 2. God did not include that in the framework of his creation. Death came because of sin. 
So whenever we encounter death, whether it's physical death or whether it's death on the inside, whether it's an emotional sense of dying or whether it's the loss of of a hope or a dream or whatever else may be the case or a friendship, God can leverage that to give himself glory. And when we go through the darkest, deepest times in our life, God is big enough to take that and to leverage it and to work it in such a way to where he gets glory out of it. And that's going to be exactly what he does here in the context of Lazarus is that he's going to glorify himself. Let's keep moving on here. Look at what he says in verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's interesting. Jesus heard he's sick. He's been asked to come. And he stays where he is for two more days. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Here's what I want you to recognize in that simple passage. And I've highlighted that part, let us go to Judea. What was in Judea? That's where Lazarus was. What was going to seem to rule the day in Judea? It would be death. And Jesus, yes, he waited two days. We're going to see why in just a moment. But he also took a step in the direction of where death seemed to reign. And there's an interesting principle about Christ that we can learn from that. It's principle number three. Let's bring up this other simple principle that God comes to us in our sorrow and in our grief. Listen, there are probably times I'd be willing to say that you have felt the most distant from God. The most distant you've ever felt has probably been in in a season of unrepentant sin, right? When we go through those seasons where we walk away from God and we sin and we're not willing to turn from it, that's when we feel furthest from God. Probably close behind where we feel the most distant from God is when we're in a place of sorrow and grief and we feel all alone and we feel that God has left us there all by ourselves. And what this passage teaches us, and it teaches us in a very real sense, that Jesus working his plan, accomplishing the will of the Father up to something bigger than Mary and Martha could ever see is now not just waiting two days for no reason, but in his plan, he's going to come to them and he's going to step into their sorrow and he's going to step into their grief and he's going to step into their loss and he's even going to step into the arena of death itself. And when we go through those seasons in our lives where we feel like we are all alone and we're left out to dry and we're dying on the inside and something has changed and we're never going to be the same again and we've lost a friendship or we've lost hope or we've lost someone we love, whatever it may be, right? God comes to us and he comes up close to us and he steps into that grief and he steps into that sorrow and he doesn't keep a distance. What he does is he wants us to understand that his desire is to be our closest friend in those times, that he's not the enemy. He's not one to push aside. He's not one to blame. He's not one to shake our fist at, oh God, why could you let me lose what I've lost? Why could you let me come to this place of such grief or such sorrow? Why could you let my hopes just die on the vine? God, why are you doing this? Let me shake my fist at you. I'm going to blame you. I'm going to walk away from you. No, that's not what God wants, right? He is our friend. He is the one we need in those seasons and those times. And we find here that he comes to us in the midst of our grief and in the midst of our sorrow. Verse 8 through verse 13, his disciples are going to start to argue with Jesus a little bit. Jesus says, let us go to Judea. 
and uh, where Lazarus is, where death reigns. And his disciples start to say, well, Jesus, you can't go there. I mean, you know who's there. Your enemies are there. The, Jew, the Jewish leaders who, who want you dead, I mean, that's who's there. They're going to stone you if you go back there. And they kind of have this back and forth, back and forth. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, well, we've got to go there because Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're thinking literal. Oh, well, if he's asleep, Lord, he's going to wake up again, right? I mean, it's, why do we have to go there? You're going to get stoned when you're there. They're going to kill you when you're there. And Jesus finally just flat out says, no, Lazarus is dead, right? We pick up there in these next verses. Look at what he says in verse 14. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Look at this next phrase. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Principle number four, experiences of loss, whatever it may be, physical loss, loss of a loved one loss of a hope or a dream or aspiration, whatever it may be, right? Those experiences of loss can ultimately be powerful opportunities for us to trust Jesus. And where we see the loss and we feel the hurt and we feel like we're dying on the inside, what we often miss is that wrapped up in that same package of hurt, loss, grief, death, whatever it may be, is an opportunity to trust Jesus like we've never trusted him before and it's an opportunity for us to know Jesus like we've never ever known him before let's go back to that passage again if we can the one we just read verse 14 and 15 what an amazing statement this is Jesus says Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there just kind of let that sink in for a moment how would you have felt if you were on the other end of that comment right Jesus says, I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. Does that mean that he lacks compassion? No, because we're going to see in just a few moments in this passage, Jesus had great compassion for Mary and Martha at the loss of their brother. Does this mean that, that somehow God is heartless? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It already says earlier in the passage that Jesus loved Lazarus right? He is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. So why would he say, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there? When he wasn't there, Lazarus died. When he wasn't there, Lazarus declined. When he wasn't there, Lazarus's life came to an end. Why would he say, I'm glad I wasn't there? Because he says that as a result of that, you're going to be able to believe at a level you've never believed before. And when Jesus looks at the, the, the hardships of our life and he holds them up in comparison to what happens when we truly trust him and believe him. He says that even an experience of death, that's going to, that's going to bring us to a place of belief. Even that's worth it. It's that important for us to believe in him and to believe in what he can do and to believe in who he is and that he's God, that he's our savior, that he's, that he's all powerful. No matter what hardships we go through, it's worth it if we come out believing and trusting him greater than we did before, that's a shocking statement Jesus would make. I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. So that, as a result, you may believe. Have you ever had a hardship in your life result in believing Christ more deeply or trusting Him more greatly? Probably so. 
And probably many of us can look back at seasons or times in our life and say, you know what, that was one of the hardest times, and yet I came out closer to God than I probably could have ever been had it not been for that season of struggle that I experienced. Verses 17 through 26 is the lengthiest passage we're going to look at this morning. Jesus begins now to have interaction with Mary and Martha, Lazarus's two sisters. It says that when Jesus came, he found that he had already, Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. It seems like he's four days late, right? Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Well, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can imagine she says this, not with a smile on her face. She says this through tears. If you had only been here, Lord, then my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. He says, you're looking at this from a local perspective. I'm looking at it from an eternal perspective. Your brother's going to rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, hey, that's a great point you bring up. Since we're talking about the resurrection, let me just expand your knowledge, right? Because remember, she didn't have, Martha didn't have the rest of the New Testament to draw from. She didn't have Paul's writings about eternity. She didn't have Paul's writings about the resurrection. She didn't get to read what other New Testament writers would say about the resurrection. She had some knowledge of it and she trusted it would come but Jesus seems to say so since we're talking about the resurrection let me expand your knowledge here I am the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me will live even if he dies I mean you think about the most significant life event that being loss of life that being death now I'm, uh, worse than financial hardship worse than relational hardship worse than anything that we could face in the form of a virus he says when you talk about death death itself that he who believes in me will live even if the worst comes even if he dies he'll still live and everyone he says who lives and believes in me will never die and then he brings it all to a head and he says to Martha do you believe this because this is the question of life, right? This is the thing we've got to figure out. This is, what, this is what all of life comes to, and this is what all of life hinges on once death invades us, is what do we do with the person of Jesus? Because if he's not the resurrection, then we're not coming up. And if he's not life, we don't know him. <laughs> we're never going to have what God intended for us. It all comes down to this, really. Jesus makes this interesting statement. He says, I am. Seven times in the book of John, he would make what's called the I am statements, right? I am the gate. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And that I am statement, if you remember, 
from your Old Testament study, going back to Exodus chapter 3. Remember when God revealed himself to Moses with that most intimate name? And he said, I am, Moses said to God when God's calling him at the burning bush. And, and Moses says, well, Lord, if you're going to send me to your people, and I'm going to be doing all these you know, miraculous things to try to lead our people, to, your people to, to, in, into uh, the promised land and out of slavery, then they're going to ask me, who's telling you to do all this? And I've got to give them a name. So what should I tell them? Remember God said, tell them, I am has sent you. It's that name Yahweh, that, that the, the most personal name for God. Seven times in the book of John, Jesus uses that same name, I am. I am, like I said earlier, I am the gate. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He does it here. I am the resurrection of life. It's a way for Jesus to demonstrate to everyone who heard him, and the Jewish leaders wouldn't have missed it. He was claiming to be God. He's claiming to be deity there. And he says, all of life hinges on me. And no matter what kind of death you experience, even physical death, but if physical death, certainly those things on the inside that seem to die, when hope dies and relationships die and any other things that die in your life, he says, I'm the one who's able to bring life back into place because I am the resurrection and I am the life. I don't just have the keys to life. I don't just can, I'm not just one who can lead you to life. I am the life. <laughs> Maybe for you, when you begin to think about what you've lost in your life, maybe whenever you think back to the ways you've dealt with the loss of loved ones or the loss of significant things in your life, maybe when you think back to those times when you were at your lowest and you felt like hope was lost, maybe for you back then, Maybe you didn't have as clear a picture as you do today that, you know what, even in those places, Jesus can reign. And even in those places, he can replace what's lost with life. Not just because he's a miracle-working God, but because he is life. He is the resurrection. John will continue. Look at what's, what he says in verse 27. It was in the context of this experience, death, that Martha says to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. It's in those moments where we sometimes experience the worst that we see God shine the brightest. And it's in those moments where it seems as though we are at our end that we find that God leverages that. And God doesn't just work good out of it, but he brings us to a place of trust and he brings us to a place of belief like we've never been to before. John continues in this passage in verses 28 through 32. Uh, Mary and Martha just kind of, they both go out to meet Jesus and they have brief conversation. Verse 33, look at what Jesus' response is here. It says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who had came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Where have you, where have you laid Lazarus? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. <laughs> if you were ever in Sunday school as a kid, or if you ever went to a school where you had to learn Bible verses, this was your go-to, wasn't it? Right? John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the English translation of the Bible. Man, it is just packed. And it reminds us of 
who God is, the God that we serve, that he's a God with a heart for his own. He's a God with compassion. He's a God of mercy and he's a God of grace. Everything we just sang, that's who he is. And Jesus wasn't pushed off to the side with his arms crossed with a cold heart as all this unfolded, just shaking his head at those lousy people, come on. No, he was, he was weeping. And in the Greek language, it doesn't mean he just dabbed his eyes with a tissue and moved on. It meant that he was full-on weeping. Why would he weep? John doesn't tell us. He doesn't really open up the, um, the passage to that degree for us. I think, this is my thought, I, I don't think Jesus was weeping because his friend Lazarus had died. Jesus knew what he was about to do. I mean, it, it wasn't an accident that he was going to be raising Lazarus from the dead. He knew what was coming, right? I, I think, in, in, in my perspective, I think the reason that Jesus was weeping was because of the hopelessness that surrounded that situation, that he saw people, and it doesn't mean anything is wrong with grief or sorrow or even when we weep or are hurt over the loss of someone or something special. It doesn't mean that at all. I think what Jesus was perhaps grieved by was the sense of hopelessness that was there that day by the very group that would reject him as the Messiah who were weeping and sorrowing and grieving with no hope whatsoever. I think that's what cut to the heart of Jesus, was seeing the, the, the lack of any hope whatsoever. And here he is, the life. I mean, here he is, the resurrection. And he knew that his very people who needed resurrection and needed life, these Jewish leaders, were going to be the very ones that would hang him on a cross in just a matter of days. The principle that comes out of this for us, again, that I hope you'll write down, is that in our experiences of death that Jesus desires to walk with us in friendship, closer than a brother. I said earlier death was not a part of God's personal plan, his, of his eternal plan. When he created in Genesis 1 and 2, death was not in the mix. Death came because of sin, right? Death came because of us, that it was in our own independent choice that mankind sinned and rebelled against God. And it was there that death entered God's creation. God created with a framework for us to fall. And it doesn't mean that our fall is his fault. He created us with a framework to be able to choose whether we would love and serve him or whether we would not. Adam and Eve chose at a moment in time to disobey and to live life on their, their own terms. And we can't blame them too quickly because we've done the same thing. And we would have done the same thing had we been there as well. And so it was in that moment of sin that death came. It's not God's fault. We can't assume that God is somehow the one to blame or that he's the enemy. God is the one who longs to step into our grief and step into our sorrow, whether it's a physical loss or whether it's the loss of something on the inside. God desires to step into that. And he's not the one we need to push aside. He wants us to embrace him. He wants us to walk closely with him. You think about in scriptures when Peter had ultimately betrayed Jesus and there he is weeping, probably uncontrollably because he had failed his Lord. He had betrayed him. He had, he had turned him into the authorities basically. I mean, three times he could have spoken up. Three times Peter ultimately betrayed Jesus and we find him just broken as a result of that. What happens later? Jesus comes to him and he reinstates him and he restores him. Why? Because he desired relationship. He desired friendship, not judgment. Two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus in the book of Luke towards the close of his gospel 
And we find that the, resur- or the crucifixion has happened. The resurrection has not yet occurred. And these two disciples are walking on this dirty, dusty road to a town called Emmaus. And as they're walking, their hearts are broken and they're, they're just perplexed and they're confused. Well, how does all this happen? We thought, we thought Jesus, we thought this man was the hope of, uh, of, of life. We thought he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And all hope is gone. And who appears? Jesus walking with them on the road to Emmaus. And he brings life to them and he gives hope to them. That's what he does. He, he desires when we go through these experiences of death to walk with us closely, to walk with us in relationship. That even though we've sinned and even though that sin has brought death and separation from God spiritually, God in his rich love and mercy towards us has demonstrated that love in unmistakable terms by sending Jesus to die for us in our place. And not only has he demonstrated that love towards us, but he also calls us into relationship with him. And when we accept that call and we step into relationship with Christ, man, we begin to experience life like we've never had before. Like we've never known before. And the people that you know who seem to be on the fringes, they're just, just making mistake after mistake and living life on their own terms, and they don't have joy, and they don't have hope, and they don't have peace. Man, Jesus can step into that circumstance. And he can bring life even to those that seem to have the hardest hearts of all. Verse 40, we come towards the close of this lengthy passage. So Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe... You'll see the glory of God. And so they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe, next slide, that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There on that very spot, Jesus yet again turned a funeral into a place of celebration. I have no idea how to conduct funerals based on how Jesus did it. Because whenever Jesus led a funeral, it seemed like he just raised the person to life. Funeral's over. Let's go eat mac and cheese, right? That's kind of the way the funeral's always ended. I don't have any pattern as a pastor to know how to lead a funeral based on how Jesus did it. <clears throat> because on these three, three occasions, this one probably, probably being the most prominent, he just raised life out of death. And we may tend to think, well, yeah, Brooks, that's easy for you to say, because, but, but in the last 2,000 years, I don't know of anybody who's been raised to life again. Hey, listen, just because he doesn't operate in much the same way now as when he walked this earth doesn't mean it's not coming. Because when Paul would write to the church in Thessalonica, take a look at what he would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, speaking of a date yet to come. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, not precede those who have already died. Speaking of a day yet to come, he says, for the Lord himself will one day descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, he says, will rise first. Those who are alive in that moment and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. There is a day coming 
when Jesus will replicate exactly what he did for the life of Lazarus, exactly what he did for Jairus' daughter, and exactly what he did for the son of the widow from Nain. He will replicate it in a day that we don't know exactly when it's going to be, but Scripture says it's coming, and it says he's coming, and we need to be ready. And when he comes, and when he calls his church home again, those who know Jesus, including my mom, and my dad, and my sister, and many of your loved ones as well, and folks from this church, who worked and gave blood, sweat, and tears to see this ministry prosper, all those who have had a relationship with Jesus from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be raised up to meet him in the air, and it will be evident yet again that Jesus brings dead things to life. And we know it hurts when something dies. We know it hurts when on the inside, emotionally, we feel dead there sometimes. We know it hurts when someone who's a part of our family passes away. We know it hurts when someone who's a part of our fellowship as a church passes away. We know it hurts when we go through those seasons of loss and grief and sorrow and struggle, and it feels like on the inside that ultimately death reigns. Yet we have to keep in mind that we serve a Savior who brings dead things to life. And by the way, what happened to old Lazarus, his story isn't over yet. A lot of times we forget that we're not done with Lazarus. He appears again in chapter 12. We don't often want to go there. For some reason we think, wow, raising him to life, I guess his story's over. Wonder how long he lived until he died again, you know, and went on to heaven to, to, to be with the Lord. We don't know those, those answers. But he does appear again in chapter 12. Look at what it says here. It's an interesting passage of Scripture, John chapter 12, verse 9. It says, A large crowd of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. You see, you had all these Jewish leaders. We want, we want to see Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. <laughs> that is the coolest thing, man. Here's a guy who's known for being dead. <laughs> what a way to be known. And what we often don't even think about is how many people came to life because of the testimony of his death and resurrection. You know, I have a sneaky suspicion there are probably things in your life that Jesus has brought to life again, right? I have a sneaky suspicion there have been places in your life where you've died on the inside and you're not dead there anymore because he brought you to life. And he brought resurrection, and he brought restoration, and he brought hope, and he brought peace, and he brought joy, and he brought life again. And at the deepest sense, for so many of us, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and we were enemies of God, and we had no hope in this world until he called us, and he drew us, and he won us, and we trusted him, and we followed him ever since. And we were transferred from, from death spiritually to life. I mean, if you're a Christian today, that is your testimony 
testimony, what we need to remember and what, what, what Lazarus teaches us is the last principle we're going to see that your life stands ultimately as a powerful, te- powerful testimony of Jesus' grace and his power and his mercy and his hope and everything that he adds to the mix. Your life. And so powerful was Lazarus' testimony that the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus with every fabric of their being realized we need to get rid of him too because the story of his life is winning people to Jesus. Hey, listen, Jesus may have brought uh, life out of your death in your life in some way. What you may have never thought about is how can I use my life to spread his glory and to spread his story because of what he's done for me. And I don't think anybody's going to want to kill you over it. You know, I think you're safe unless you go to some certain regions of the world, maybe. But don't lose sight of the fact that if Jesus has brought life out of death for you, Man, you got a story to tell. And God can get an awful lot of glory from that. And when you tell it proudly and boldly and give him the glory, man, there's no, there's no telling how many people can be impacted by the story you tell of how he brought life out of death. Hey, do you know him today that way as the resurrection and the life in your heart and your life? Can you think of those times where he, even beyond your own salvation, has demonstrated that he loves you because he stepped into your loss and your sorrow and your pain and that area of death and he brought hope and joy and resurrection and life? Do you have a story like that? Hey, why not think about just sharing it and letting God get the glory he deserves? And who knows, many may come to trust him because of you. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Man, if you've given your life to Jesus this morning, why don't you just take a moment to just thank him for what he's done for you and to thank him for the life that he's brought out of death through your salvation, through those experiences that you've been through where it seemed as though all hope was gone. And if you don't know him today, hey, do you believe that Jesus is God and that he died in your place and that he rose again? And do you believe that your sin has separated you from a relationship with God? And yet he's big enough to forgive you and to even take over your life, replacing that spiritual death with spiritual life as only Jesus can. If that's your desire this morning, and you've never given your life to Christ, right where you sit today, if you only simply invite Jesus to forgive you and to save you, he'll do it. And he'll begin to change your life. And he'll use you if you let him. Lord, we thank you this morning for this passage in John 11 that reminds us of a man who's known for being dead. Lord, who teaches us so much about you, our God who brings life. And though, Lord, we don't understand or cannot relate to exactly every element of John 11, I've never been to a service where you ended the service by raising the person back to life again. Lord, we know that that day is going to come. And Lord, that day is very clearly described in that passage we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. That yet in another way, once our lives have ended, we're going to be raised to life. 
And God, even until then, in those areas of our life where it seems like death reigns, where we've lost hope or we've lost joy or we've lost a relationship or we've lost what we thought was our security, Lord, even there you can bring life and restoration and resurrection. And God, we pray for that today. And as you do, that we would be bold, Lord, in sharing your story of how you did a miracle in us. And God, that others, through our story, our testimony, can come to know you the way we do. And so, God, we thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for what's yet to come and for the hope that we always have. No matter the valley, Lord, hope is always there, and you are always there. And so we thank you for these lessons we learn from the story of Lazarus in John 11. And we praise you for them in Jesus' name.